Uh, if you were with us last week, we started a series called Family Matters Part 2 because we did Family Matters some years ago, but we're kind of revisiting it, and there'll probably be Part 3 and Part 4 as the years go on because there's just too much to talk about, so much to talk about. Now, when I started the series, the first thing we needed to do was just kind of lay out all of the bad news about where we're at, what's going on in our nation, what you're going to face as parents, what your kids are going to face. And so that was all last week, all right? If you missed last week, all I could tell you is you just need to go online and listen. Um, it, it's very, very important. If you are a parent, if you are raising children, if you have grandchildren, it's very, very important that you, that you tune in for this series. And if you miss one week, I encourage you to get caught up online. Don't miss one week. It's so important what we're going to talk about. But last week, I kind of made a commitment that from here forward in this series, we would be very solution-oriented, meaning we're not going to just keep talking about how bad things are and, and uh, you know, what our situation is. I did that last week, and so if you're not convinced, go back and listen to that. I'm going to assume that everyone's on the same page this morning, and we all want to raise our families in a godly way, okay? I'm not going to try to convince you of that. I'm going to assume that's what you want to do. So this morning, I want to begin by giving you eight essential milestones that, that I want for my children to have by the time they leave my house, okay? Um, and I, and I want to confess that, you know, I'm not by any means, I'm not an expert on this, uh, I'm, my kids are 14 and 12, so I'm still in the middle of this. I'm not like one that's on the other side, and that's kind of the danger as a pastor of preaching. And it's like, you know, you start talking about everything you need to do right with kids, and then people start looking at your kids and they go, "Well, I mean, you know, you got they got this, that, or the other going on." Sure, there, no kids are perfect, um, including mine, uh, maybe especially mine. Anyway. Um, but so I'm not on the other side of this going, Hey, I did all of this right. And here's how you do it. I'm in the middle of it. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you that these are the eight things that I look at that I'm working towards. They're kind of my map of if my kids leave my house with these eight things, I'm going to be really happy and I will have done my job well. All right. That's what I'm after. So these eight things, I don't know if you can see them. They're kind of small. Uh, maybe you can take a picture of them with your phone or you can write them down. I'm going to go through all eight real quick. And then what we're going to do is we're going to spend a week on each one, maybe one or two. We'll cover each one and we'll just go through it. So these are the eight essential things that I want my children to have when they leave my house. Number one is a strong, vibrant relationship with God. Number two, love and passion for God's word. Number three, very high regard and commitment to the local church. Number four, I want them to understand their purpose and or call in this life. To know, in other words, why God put them on this planet. Number five, I want them to have a strong moral compass that understands clearly the difference between right and wrong. Number six, I want them to have tremendous work ethic with corresponding habits and disciplines. Number seven, I want them to have made great strides in defeating selfishness. They will not maybe completely defeat it. <laughs> but by the time they get out of my house, I want them to have made tremendous strides in defeating selfishness. And number eight, I want them to walk in wisdom, godly wisdom. Now... 
There probably are more. There are probably some things that could be added to this list, but, under, but, but also understand that really if we just stopped with the first three, we would really have done a lot. In other words, if they left my house with a strong, vibrant relationship with God, they've got a love and passion for His Word, and they have a very high regard and commitment to the local church, they're on their way to doing a lot right. Because with that, you can do just about anything. With that, you have all the ingredients that you need to be a good father, good husband, good leader. Everything is going to come out of those things. But I, gave, I went ahead and gave you the eight because I think they're, they're all very important. Now, notice what's not on that list. There's nothing about having a good education. Is having a good education important? Absolutely. I have a good education. My, I'm working for my kids to have a good education. But it, that's not in my top eight. And to be honest with you, I would, I would sacrifice that. I would sacrifice having a good education in order to accomplish these eight things. And actually, there's a lot of other things that are not on this list. There's nothing on there about them being a great athlete, about, you know, playing t-ball, baseball, none of that, about them having a good career and making lots of money. That's not on there. Now, are those worthy things to work for? Sure, but so many times our priorities are backwards, and what we're doing with our kids is we want them to get into the right school, we want them to get the right education, we want to give them the right career, and we'll do those things and sacrifice these essential eight that I just listed. I see it all the time. I see it all the time, parents that will fight for their kids to be in things, be part of things, participate in things that do not matter and will not help them in life. And when they get married and when they're raising their own family, they could have the best career, they could have the best education, and their marriage is falling apart, they're unhappy, they're depressed, they're not going after God. Listen, as a pastor, I encounter it all the time. So please, what I'm asking you and what I'm encouraging us to do together is let's get our priorities straight. These things that we listed here far trump your kids having a good education. Now, again, I'm all for having a good education. And let's say this, could, could there and should there be another list other than these eight things? Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you about a list I have. When my kids turned uh, right around the time they turned 10 or 11, me and my wife sat down one day and we realized, man, we, we've already gone through a decade of raising our kids and we've only got one decade left. Uh, so how about we sit down and write a list of things that we want to accomplish in this, in this decade? And we did. We made a list of things that we wanted for our kids to have and experience by the time they got out of their house. It was in addition to this list. Things like we wanted to visit Disney World. We did it. Okay, we wanted our kids to fly on an airplane. They've done that. We wanted our kids to learn to play an instrument. They've done that and are doing that, continuing to do that. So, yeah, there's other lists. You may have lists like want my kids to play a sport, want them to get a good education, want them to have a good career. Great. But just please understand it's not on the same playing field and it's not on the same level as these essential things that we're going to look at in this series. In other words, if my child never played a sport, never learned an instrument, never flew in an airplane, but they loved God passionately and they loved his word and they were committed to the local church, I'd be thrilled. Because out of that is going to come everything else that they need in this life. And we've got to realize that. So we're going to begin 
this morning talking about number one, which is having a strong, vibrant relationship with God. You know, I'll say this for my life. I was raised in a really good family, great parents, uh, you know, had lots of great opportunities for things and so grateful and thankful for the family that I raised in, that I was raised in. But uh, the, the number one thing that I'm grateful for and thankful for that I walked out of, of my house with was a strong, vibrant relationship with God. And my parents fought for that even when I didn't see the value in it, even when maybe I didn't understand what the big deal was. They fought for that in my life, and praise God, that made all the difference. That made all the difference. How many of you, don't raise your hand because this might be embarrassing. How many of you in here have a college education that you paid a heck of a lot of money for that you ain't doing nothing with? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. (laughs) But I see the chuckles and the smiles and the looking at each other. And you're still paying on it and you ain't done nothing. Listen, no one who has a strong relationship with God will ever feel the way about that that you do about that education that you got. No one will ever look at their relationship in God, in God and say, well, what has this really gotten me in life? If you have that question, you ain't doing it right. Because my relationship with God is the anchor for, for everything. Matter of fact, I could lose about 90% of the things in my life, but if I still have that, I've got everything. Because the, uh, the other stuff is so far, the gap between, I could lose my house, my car, the ministry, all my money, and if I had a relationship with God and the Bible, I could just about start over anywhere and, and really have the same level of happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in life as I have right now. That's how crucial it is. And yet, so many families, they don't fight for that in their kids. And maybe they don't realize how to do it. Maybe they don't realize their role in it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Here's the big question. How do we cultivate a relationship with God in our kids? Well, you're probably not going to like the first thing that I have to say uh, because it really doesn't have much to do with them and it has everything to do with you. Number one is you have to model it. See, this is the part where it gets hard because you start trying to get into, all right, well, how do I develop a relationship? How do I cultivate that with my kids? How do I get them to love God? How do I get them to experience God? Well, number one, number one, you have to have all of that yourself. You have to have that in you. You have to have a strong, vibrant relationship with God. You can't be lukewarm, apathetic, disinterested towards the things of God, half in, half out hypocritical, no passion for church, no passion for the word, no passion for the lost. You can't, if that's you, trust me, it's contagious, and that's what is going to come on your kids. Okay, Now, but the, the opposite is true too. When you love God, when your life revolves around God, God is the center of your life and your family. Okay, when you're living out the gospel, you are a true disciple of Christ. And you're living the word of God. And your life is built on a, 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 the foundation of the rock of God's word. When you're living that out and you're modeling that in front of your children, let, let me tell you, it is contagious. It is contagious. They will pick that up as they watch you and they, they see that in you. I can't emphasize can't overemphasize the importance of this. 
See, sometimes we know how important it is for our kids, but in our own life, we're not necessarily walking some of these things out. But it's very important for us to have that relationship with God ourselves, or it's going to be very difficult for our children to have it. This is why in the Bible, this connection between the parents following God and then the children following God, this is why in the Bible you get these statements like this. When they talk about God, they say, He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are they saying? They're saying, my grandfather had this faith, my father had this faith, and now I have it. I watched my dad, I watched my grandpa, and now I'm imparting it to my children, and it's going to my children's children, and it's generational. Listen, generational, there are a few things in this life that are more powerful than generational Christianity, and here's what I mean. If you look at your life, if you, if you kind of look through the generations, how many of you could look back at your, your, maybe your grandparents and think, man, they were really messed up? Not saying mine were, I'm just saying people, you look at your family and you go, man, the the grandparents were really messed up. Then somebody got a hold of God. So then their kids were not as messed up, but they were still kind of messed up. Then it was about about the third generation or the fourth generation that you go, man, look at these kids just grazing God. And I, I look at my own family and it just seems like from generation to generation, they're getting better. And now I look at my kids and I'm going, my kids are being raised Nothing like I was raised. Nothing like my parents were raised. Like it just on and on and on. It, what happens? Well, with generational Christianity, more flaws, more kinks, more dysfunction gets left on the wayside. And, and more things that are right and more things that are God's way get put in, put in, put in. And it gets pow- more powerful with every generation. I know that we like the microwave, quick fix, you know, instant, just let God show up, change everything, fix everything. But I talk to Christians all the time that are still very dysfunctional because they were raised in dysfunctional families. And all I can say is this, get, get rid of as much of it as you can in your own life, but let's focus on not passing it to the next generation. That's the main thing. And I thank God for, for my grandparents, for my parents, that they may have experienced one thing in their life, but they realized, okay, this is dysfunctional, and I don't want this passing to my kids. And, and so the battles that they fought, the demons that they fought, so that their children would be raised in a different way than they were raised. And listen, that's what we're doing as parents. If you have a dysfunction in your life that you've battled, that you fought, Hey, go to God with it, deal with it, fight it. But here's the main thing. Let's not pass it to the next generation. Let's make sure that some of these iniquities, some of these hang-ups that that have sidetracked you and derailed you, that they don't pass to your kids. And I believe God can work it out in you too. But this is the power of generational Christianity. I believe every generation ought to get stronger and more powerful and, and more effective for God if we're doing our job right. Let me stop here and say this too. If you are a parent, if you are a parent, this is one of your number one missions in life is to raise godly children. It's one of your number one missions. Way, in God's eyes, way more important than what you do as a career. Way more important how much money you make, how much is in your 401k, how much you rise in your career, how, how famous you are, well-known you are, how much influence you have, way more important than all of that is 
What are you doing with those children that I gave you? Do you know why? Because that is your first and most important priority. Talking about your mission. Talking about your call in life. What are you doing with those, those children? Why? Because it's the model that God set up. Think of it this way. If every family from the beginning, go all the way back to the garden, if every family followed God and taught their kids to follow God, the church would have a lot less to do. Because the family would actually be doing what the church is doing. The family would be discipling their children, teaching their children the Word of God. And the church is meant to be just a supplement for that. But it's not meant to be the solution for all of that. It's not actually meant to be the one that's discipling your kids. No. The family is the number one model of discipleship that God set up. And if your children are being discipled, they're being taught, they're being raised to follow God, you're praying with them, you're teaching them, you're instructing them, you're modeling it to them, then the church gets to come alongside and just kind of supplement and add to that and help you in what your call already is. But if every family was doing that, how many know our world would look completely different? Of course it would because God knew what he was doing. See, the most powerful form of discipleship is a live-in disciple, right? Okay, so what we're doing this morning is a form of discipleship. I'm teaching you, you know, the Word of God, and we have Sunday school and life groups, and that, that's all good. But actually, the most powerful form of discipleship is a live-in disciple like Jesus had. Jesus took 12 guys, and for three years, they lived with him, they slept in tents together. They ate food together. They sat around campfires. They were with him every second of every day, watching him, listening to him, hearing what he said to the crowds, but then hearing what he said by the campfire, hearing what he said in public, but then hearing what he said in private, watching him in public, then watching him in private. That's why in three years, there was so much imparted to them. Why? Because they were a live-in disciple. Now, I'm not looking at taking any more live-in disciples in in my <laughs> life. I've got two and not taking in anymore. So there's like levels, right? You can't, if you're trying to help someone, if you're trying to disciple someone, you probably didn't bring them into your house. Maybe you like took them out for coffee or something like that, or you know, you invited them to church. That's, that's fine. The live-in disciple is a very invasive form of discipleship. But that's what your children are. Your children are not just children, they are disciples. And they live with you and it's the most powerful form of discipleship. Here's the thing about discipleship, though. It's a form of replication. In other words, whatever you are is what you're going to produce. If you have an anger problem, don't be surprised when it shows up in your kid. If you have a problem with your mouth, don't be surprised when it shows up in your kid. If you talk to your wife one way, men, if you talk to your wife one way, don't, don't be surprised when your kids start talking to her the same way. And you go, well, well, I'm their dad, and, you know, I can talk that way, but you can't. Listen, you're modeling it all the time. No, it doesn't matter what you say. They're watching what you do. And so the live-in disciple is the most powerful form of discipleship, and, it, and discipleship is a, it's a, it's a form of replication. You're going to replicate what you are. You're passionate about God. It's more likely you're going to impart that to your kids. If you're lukewarm, half in, half out, still battling the flesh, still full of sin, still not repenting of things, that's going to be passed down to your, to your kids. They're learning it all from you. And you might think, well, I don't want to be a disciple maker. Well, when you had kids, you 
signed up. And you go, well, I, you know, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. Well, then you're a bad disciple maker, but you're a disciple maker nonetheless. It's happening one way or another. You ever been talking to one of your kids and you just shake your head and you go, my God, you sound just like your daddy. There's a reason for that. They live with him. They're watching him. They learned it somewhere. You know, we joke about that and uh, we've talked about this before, but how in every generation, the previous generation kind of gets mad at the new generation, right? They're like, I don't understand that generation. I don't understand the new generation. They do this. They do that. They do. And I always think to myself, somebody raised them. Right? Somebody's raising them. Someone is teaching them. Someone's discipling them. They didn't just, they're a blank slate when they come into the world. It's not like inherently, genetically, a generation is predisposed to something. There's something that there is being imprinted on them. And it's amazing how consistent it gets where it's across the whole board. Yeah, there's a reason for that. The, the baby boomers produced Generation X. Generation X produced millennials. Millennials have produced Generation Z. It goes on and on. Somebody's raising them. And, um, you know, again, I'm not perfect at this by any means, but I'll tell you this, my, my kids by and large do not think like the generation around them. And that's very intentional. Because every wrong attitude, every wrong mentality, everything that's wrong with our culture and how they think, we sit down and we have conversations about it. I say, you see how they said this, this, and this? You see how that show said this, that, or that? You see how you heard this? Well, let me explain to you why that's totally wrong and what the Word of God says about it, and we have a conversation about it. And they ask questions, and I give them input, and they give me input, and we have a conversation about it. I'm not, as they've gotten older, and, you know, parenting strategies have to change with the age of the child. There's something you just don't want them to hear at all, depending on their age. Then as they start getting older, they start hearing more things, and you begin to have conversations with them, and you say, yeah, this is a real thing in our society, in our culture. Let me tell you what I think about that. Let me tell you what the Word of God thinks about that. And here's what I don't want. Uh, I don't want my kids to just parrot me. I want you to think for yourself. I want to have understood the subject and discussed it enough with you that you adopted the belief yourself, not that you're just parroting dad, because that doesn't help you, because what are you going to do then when dad's not there, and you can't just, well, what does dad think? No, I want you to have seen the truth yourself. I want it to have made sense to you. And we're going to talk about it, and we're going to discuss it until you do, and until you get it. If I can see my kids don't understand something, I rarely, rarely, I almost never want to default to, well, then just do it because I said so, whether you understand it or not. I know that's easier, and sometimes we have to go there, but really, the goal is not just blind obedience, because when you just have blind obedience, then when they get out of your sight, and they get a little bit of freedom, they're going to do something completely different than what you told them to do. We don't want just blind obedience. We want kids that understand. We want kids that adopt it for themselves, that they've, they've seen it from logic, from the Word of God, from you explaining with them patiently, and from seeing it in your own life, seeing the difference. It's a lot of work, isn't it? So number one, we want to model it. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Paul is writing to to Timothy, who 
was his most faithful disciple. And in 2 Timothy 1.5, he said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So you see this generational Christianity. Paul is talking to Timothy. He says it, it was in your grandmother Lois first. She passed it down to your mother Eunice, and now it is in you also, and that's what we want. I want my kids to experience God more than I did, sooner than I did. I want them to do more for God than I did. Doesn't mean they got to be a pastor or anything like that. Just in their call, whatever their call is, whatever their purpose is, I want them to do it, and I want them to do it better than I did, and I want it to get better with every generation. So you are first and foremost a disciple maker. You cannot replicate what you do not have. That's why I say the first thing is model it. If you want your kids to be something, you have to first make sure you have it in your own life. And this is where it comes time for self-examination. And don't think it's good enough to just try to hide that part of your life from them and go, well, I don't want them to be like this or I don't want them to be like me in this way, so I'm just going to hide them and shield it. Listen, they are too smart for that. It will always come out. It will always come out. You have to actually be it. You have to authentically be what you want to produce in your kids. And so this is an indirect way of influencing them. We're going to talk about a lot of things you need to do specifically to them and with them. But this first one is you got to do it to yourself. And it's way more powerful actually than the other ways. Because the number one way they're going to learn is by watching you. This past week I spent a lot of time with my youngest niece, uh, Brandon and Jamie's daughter, Zoe, and, uh, well, I think she's two now, yeah, so anyway, she, but she just repeats everything she hears. I mean, you'll be talking, and she just says the most hilarious things. You don't even know what they mean. She just says, you know, what she's hearing other people say, and uh, it's just so funny, but, that, but God designed them that way. They're just like a sponge absorbing information. I remember one, uh, my kids were, when they were in car seats, they were sitting in the back seat of the car, and we were driving down the highway one day, and uh, one of my kids piped up. I, you know, we were going through a traffic light, and one of my kids piped up and said, oh, you know, green light, that means go. And I was like, oh, man, they've been paying attention back there in the back, already learning to drive, you know, watching the, sitting in the car seat. Green light means go. So I said, oh, that's, man, that's good. I said, what does red light mean? They said, red light means stop. I said, what does yellow light mean? Yellow light means speed up. I was like, whoa. They really are paying attention to their mama when she drives. I mean, oh my gosh. Just. <laughs> I'm like, man, they're paying attention. But this is why I say, you cannot replicate what you do not have. See, this is one I've started thinking about. I do not want, I'm terrified, I do not want my kids to text and drive. Therefore, my son's 14. So I started to notice, okay, how much do you text and drive? Because he's sitting in the seat next to you. How much do you click on that or look on that or, you know, go to find a phone or go to respond real quick to a text message? And you may have all the reasons in your head. Well, I'm at a stoplight or, well, this, that, or the other. My car's driving for me right now. You know, whatever, whatever things we got going on. But I'm thinking in two years or whatever, you know, a year, he's going to be driving 
And how am I going to tell him, don't text and drive, if that's what he's seeing me do? What he's going to see, what he's going to be thinking in his head is, yeah, yeah, I know that's the rule, but uh, there's okay is sometimes to do it. So I've started having to think about that. Why? Well, because you can't replicate what you do not have. If we tell our kids, I want you to do this and be this and act this way, then you better be doing it yourself because they're going to follow that more than what you say. So we want discipleship is replication, but you can't replicate what you do not have. So do they see you worship? Do your kids see you worship? Or is worship to them something that you don't participate in? Is worship something to them that, you know, well, only certain Christians do? Maybe you don't care if your kid is a worshiper. I want my child to be a worshiper of God. Do they see you worship? Do they see and hear you pray? You know, I, I, I grew up waking up every morning to hearing my mother praying in our living room. Sometimes going to bed, you know, her praying with friends in the living room. They was a weird bunch. That's what they did for fun was get together and pray. But one of them would have a guitar and then they'd have some music going. Sometimes, anyway, it was just, I, sometimes I would go to bed with that. But I heard my parents praying. Do your kids know that you pray? Do your kids know that you have a prayer life? Do your kids see you reading the Bible, studying the Word of God? Do they hear you discussing the Word of God? Or is the Word of God to them just something we go to church, we hear about the Word of God, and then nobody talks about it for the rest of the week? Like, when I read something in the Bible, I discuss it with my family. If something interests me or something catches my attention, I discuss it with my family, you know, and not, not like, hey, everybody sit down, you know, just we're driving in the car or we're out for dinner. I go, hey, man, you guys know what I read this morning? And I start telling them what I read and, and uh, what, what it meant to me and what I learned from, and they ask questions, and we, talk, we discuss the Word of God. That should be part of it because what? Well, your relationship with God's not meant to be compartmentalized. It's not meant to be, okay, you know, as good Christians, we go to church and we go for an hour and a half every Sunday, and sometimes we miss and don't go, but, you know, that's what Christianity is. That's the worst way to make a disciple because you're actually teaching them that God is just a very, very, very small part of our life, but the other, you know, six and three-quarter days of the week, we do whatever we want to do and basically barely even mention God. That's not what we want. So what I want my kids to understand is, no, if church disappeared... Okay, if church just went away altogether, God would still be the center of every day of our life. Every day, we'd still be living for God, reading His Word, discussing it with one another. If we, if we couldn't go to the big church, we'd be having church right here at our house. Then I want them to know that. I want them to know that God means everything. Your kids need to see the times in your life where you could have done this, you wanted to do this, everything in you wanted to go that way, but your commitment and your dedication to God was bigger, and you said, no, I'm not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not going to make that decision. Here's what we feel like doing. Here's what we want to do, but we're not going to do that because God is the center of our life. You know, sometimes we'll go on vacation or something like that, and the kids are like, oh, man, wouldn't it be cool if we lived here, you know? And we'll have those conversations. We'll say, well, you know, we could live here. 
I mean, yeah, we could pack up everything. We could move tomorrow. No reason we couldn't do that. But we don't live where we live because it's the nicest, most beautiful, pleasant place in the world. We live where we live and we do what we do because God called us there and we would never dream of uprooting from there because our life is not about living in the nicest, best place that our little mind decides. Our life is about living on mission and fulfilling the call of God on our life. And we're putting that in them from the time that, they're, that they're, they're young. You know, the conversations we have about our kids' future. It goes into, uh, you know, we don't tell them, well, you could do whatever you want to do. Oh, you can just do anything you want to do. No, absolutely not. You, you were put here for a reason. You have a call and a purpose, and that's the thing that you need to do. God has a call and plan for your life, and I believe he put you here for a reason, and that's where you're going to be most happy. That's where you're going to be fulfilled, not where you make the most money, not where you decide, you, you know, you think you want to do at 18, just whatever you came up with. No. God put you here for a reason. And so we t- we've been talking about that to them from the time they were kids. You were put here for a reason. God put you on this planet. You may not know what it is. He's going to show it to you. He's going to reveal it to you. You're going to discover that at a certain point in your life, just like I did. God's going to show it to you. And they know that. They've been thinking that for a long time. So discipleship is all about replication, which is why having correct doctrine in your own life is so important. If you are a disciple maker, and this is why some people don't want to make disciples, they're like, well, I don't really know the Bible that good, you know, I mean, I haven't read, all I know to tell you is start reading it. Start reading it. I mean, my, (laughs) anybody can read the Bible, is what I want to say. Anybody can read the Bible. My, my kids, both of my kids are 14 and 12. Both of them have read through the New Testament. Any Christian can read through the New Testament. It's not hard. You can do it, but it does have to be a priority to you. It, it does have to be something that's important to you. And anybody that has a, a consistent daily reading, if you just read half a chapter a day, you're going to eventually get through it. So if you are a disciple maker, then yeah, you better know the Word of God. Which, if you're a Christian to begin with, and you're, the, the whole premise of Christianity is that we're actually basing our life on a book that we think is the inspired, infallible Word of God. If that's what you think, then you need to know what's in it. If that's what you believe, you need to know what it actually says. Um, so if you're going to be a disciple maker, you've got to know the Word of God. You got to read the Word of God. You got to listen to the Word of God. You got to podcast the Word of God. You got to come on Sundays and, and hear teaching on the Word of God. It's got to be a regular part of your life. And, and what we know about Christianity is, is that the Word of God is like food for our spirit, that our, our spirit is constantly taking in and eating and nourishing that food, uh, receiving that food as nourishment for our spirit. So yeah, it's got to be a regular, ongoing part of your life. Not just so that you can grow as a believer, but so that you can impart it correctly and accurately to your children. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, when Paul was talking to Timothy about making disciples in the church, he said, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see this process of discipleship. Paul tells Timothy, look, what I've imparted to you, I need you to find some faithful men and impart it to them. 
then they can turn around and find some faithful men and impart it to them, and the process just keeps going. As a matter of fact, we're all sitting in this church today because of the original group of disciples that Jesus had and started all the way back then, and it just kept getting passed down, passed down, passed down. This doctrine, this gospel was imparted to someone else who was faithful with it, and they imparted it to someone else, and here we are today. And here are thousands of people gathered together across the city this morning because of this process of discipleship. Well, the most important form of discipleship is the family. I mean, if you never made any other disciples in this whole life except your own children, you would have done well. Because if everybody did that, that'd be all you have to do. Right? I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not trying to reach the world and, and make sure the world hears the gospel and everybody comes into the and then, and then my own family not. I'm not trying to disciple the world and not disciple my children. My children are first and foremost. As a matter of fact, when Paul is talking about appointing elders in the church, this is the number one criteria that he uses. There's three different places in the New Testament where Paul lays out requirements for deacons, elders, bishops, that type of thing. And in no, the number one thing that he mentions, I think there's 54, 51 total qualities that he mentions. The number one thing that he mentions over and over again is he must lead his family well. It's number one above everything else. He says it's a, it's a test almost. It's a litmus test to tell are they ready to lead the people of God? He says, because how can anybody lead and manage the people of God if he can't lead and manage his own family? So he uses it as an example. He says, man, if you can't, if you can't lead two or three, why would you stand up in front and try to lead hundreds of people? He says, no, you haven't even discipled them well. Why would you be trying to disciple other people? So God looks at it. It's very important. He looks at it. And he holds us responsible that this is our first and most important priority as Christians is to make sure that our family is following God, going after God. So when we talk about replicating, again, we can't replicate what we do not have. And then what we do have, we're trying to impart that to our kids. So we need to make sure that what we have is correct, meaning correct doctrine. We need to think correctly. Okay, so number one, how do we impart, how do we cultivate a strong, vibrant relationship with God? Well, number one is we have to model it. The second thing I want you to know about modeling discipleship is that true discipleship is 24-7. Okay, it's not compartmentalized. And actually, some of the most powerful uh, discipleship just happens in the moment. It happens when someone gets sick and we have to pray. It happens when someone mistreated you at school and you, you talk to them about forgiveness. It happens when they walk in and you're, you're reading the Bible and they go, hey, do you do that every morning? And you begin that conversation. Or they heard something at school and they come back and they say, hey, I heard this. What does it mean? Or what, what is that about? Well, that's discipleship, 24-7, discipling and training your kids in the ways of the Lord. Here's how Deuteronomy, uh, God said it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. He said, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, as you go about daily life, when you're walking down the path, you talk to your kids. When you sit down at the dinner table, you talk to your kids. It's, it's always moments of discipleship. And as wise parents, we have to recognize when those moments or when those windows open, and we take advantage of it and we capitalize. I don't know uh, if any of your kids are like this, but I have... Uh, one of my kids that it seems like that window is always wide open at about 1030 at night, right when they're about to go to bed. And I'm like, all right, I got other stuff I want to be doing. I was coming in here for a quick kiss and prayer, and then I'm out. And then all of a sudden, there's some great big question, you know, something that's been on their heart all day. I'm like, we could have talked about this some hours ago, but all right. That window is open, and then you recognize and you realize, all right, this is a moment for discipleship. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require me laying down the flesh and putting aside what I want to do. But this is a moment for discipleship. And as parents, we have to recognize those moments. So, so many times as a pastor, youth pastor back in the day, I could see that window in a kid's life. But for whatever reason, their parents couldn't see it. And it was always so frustrating to me as a youth pastor I'd go, man, I could tell this child is so tender. They're hungry for God. They, they want to be at church every time the doors are open. They, they love to pray. They want to go to camp. And it was like their parents were oblivious to it and they wouldn't bring them to church and didn't care if they were in camp. They still had them all in this other stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if you realize that that's a very precious window that you may never get back. Because I've also seen moments where that window closes and then the parent would do anything if they could just get through to them. They could just get them to go to church. They could just get them to see that, no, that window closed. And I'm not saying it can't ever open again, but as parents, we have to be very, very wise and very, very in tune. If we're out saving the world, making money, building careers, and our kids don't end up being disciples of Christ, we failed. And this isn't, you know, you might be sitting here thinking, oh, well, that's too late for me. You know, my kids are out. Yeah, this isn't about, you know, condemning that or going back and unscrambling eggs. I, you know, that's not the point of this at all. This is about for those of you that are in the battle and it's not too late and you still have time. And by the way, none of us are perfect. There are, there are no perfect parents. Everybody's going to make mistakes and praise God for his grace that comes alongside and helps us. But still, we need to do the best that we can. And that's why we're talking about this. So... He says, when, you, when your child, uh, you shall diligently teach them, and you shall talk of these laws, talk about the word of God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, every moment is a moment for discipleship. I remember one of the uh, camps that I worked at back in the day before I got married. Uh, we took kids out on like two-week hiking trips, canoe trips, things like this. And one of the things they trained us with, they said, uh, we want you to look for teachable moments. In other words, yeah, when you're sitting around the campfire, sure, open up the Bible, teach them the Word of God, all of that. It'll be, you know, that'll be good. But the most powerful things that happens on these trips are teachable moments. In other words, things that happen unexpectedly, and you didn't know they were happening. You didn't plan it, but it happened. And then in the moment, you're able to just use that as a way to disciple them. And they were absolutely right. So many times we'd have things happen, you know, canoe flip or somebody lose all their food in the river. And you're like, oh, God, what are you going to do? And then you use that as a moment to teach the whole group. It's the same thing when you're parenting. We're constantly looking for ways to get through. 
looking for ways to, to teach you the same thing that I've been telling you, but in a new, fresh way that maybe you see it this time that you didn't see it before. Always looking for that. But what does that require? Well, that requires us to have the Spirit of God on the inside of us, to have wisdom and truth and nuggets of truth on the inside of us, and it requires us to be in tune. It requires us to be in tune, not so preoccupied with all of this other stuff that doesn't matter. We've got to be in tune with what's going on in the life of our children. So number one, if we're going to cultivate our child's relationship with God, we've got to model it ourselves. We've got to be it ourselves. But number two is we want to expose them to environments and opportunities where they can meet God. Not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's very important to have your kids in church. Very important to have them in, in, the, in, in youth group, children's church, main service. Very important to have them going to youth camp. Let me tell you something. I had an experience at youth camp when I was 15 years old that changed my life forever. And for 15 years, I'd been in every church service available. <laughs> Wasn't like I didn't have enough church. I had a lot of church. Matter of fact, I had probably more church than many people have in their whole lifetime in the first 15 years of my life. But there was something different about that moment at camp. I can't explain it, okay? I don't know why that happens, but yet it's predictable, and it's a pattern that I've seen over and over again in the ministry. Kids that were, they've been in every church service. They've heard every message. But then there's a moment where the finger of God touches them and it's like it ignites everything that's been put in them in a moment. It happens often. And it, a lot of times it happens at places like youth camp. It can happen in a youth service. But you've got to understand this process. Don't think, oh, well, they, you know, yeah, well, they go to youth group every now and then. Oh, we bring them to church every now and then. Oh, well, we send them to camp that one year and nothing happened. Listen, put them in camp every single year. If you start sending them when they're 12 and they leave when they're 18, you got about six camps. I'd send them to every one. Why? Because I'm not missing one chance, one opportunity for them to encounter God. Because I promise you, they can encounter God in a way, at a moment like that, that can change their life like nothing else can. And they will forever be different. Their future will be different. Their choices will be different. Everything about them will be different. So put them in environments where they can encounter God. The first, these, these two things go hand in hand. I've seen kids that had no modeling. I've seen kids that were raised in the worst of families go to camp and encounter God and their life be changed forever. That's how powerful it is. On the other hand, I've seen the opposite. I've seen kids that were raised in good families. And they didn't have the camp and the good youth group. They were raised in an area where there wasn't a great church, you know, and they, they just weren't really. But they led their family. They discipled their family. But how many of you know they're better together? I mean, yeah, you could do one without the other, but it's like the one-two punch. Man, if you're being raised in a good family, but then you're also in a good church where they're, they're going to camp, they're encountering God, they learn to serve, they learn to, you know, play on the worship team, they learn to serve in the media booth, they, they're raised in church. These experiences draw them closer to God, and they begin to see their value in the overall kingdom of God. So I think it's extremely important to expose our children to environments where they can encounter God. I mean... I know I've seen kids when we do the prayer nights here at church on Wednesday night, sometimes during the fast, 
We'll have prayer nights here at the church. I've seen, ki- I've seen teenagers kneeling on the, at, at their seat crying before God during prayer, encountering God. And yet people just, oh, yeah, sit at home, nothing, not, not come, not bring them. Listen, you need to have your kids in, in opportunities and in environments where they can encounter God. That's more important than whatever else you have going on. I can tell you that. Well, I'm tired. I'm home. I don't want to come. I, I understand. But that's why fighting for your kids is just that. It is a fight. And there are times that you have to lay aside your schedule, your personal feelings, all of that, to put your kids in an environment, especially if you see that window that we were talking about earlier. If you see that window where they're tender to God, they're, they're, they're hungry for God. They're wanting God in a way. Listen, do not squander that. That is precious. That is a gift. Be wise with that and put them in environments where they can encounter God. What are the most detrimental things to a child's spiritual health? That's the last thing I want to talk about this morning. If our number one goal and uh, desire for our kids is to leave our homes with a strong, vibrant relationship with God, what are the most detrimental things to a child's spiritual health? In other words, what, will, what are the number one things that will block this and prevent this, hinder this? Okay, number, and I'm, th- a lot of this is just from experience of pastoring and talking to people, counseling people. Talking to people that, as teenagers, turned away from God. And seeing these things over and over and over and over again. What are the most detrimental things to a child's spiritual health? Number one thing that I hear is hypocrisy. Number one. Well, my parents were Christian. They said they were Christians. But they acted like this. They did this. Hypocrisy will drive a child away from God. Do not, whatever you do, do not pretend, do not act like at church or in public that you're this big Christian, big, you know, follower of God, but then you're living hypocritical in your private life. Listen, that is damaging for your children. That is so damaging. And it's the number one thing that I see that turns kids away from the Lord. Because it doesn't take them long to connect the dots. It doesn't take long for them to figure out this is not real. This is not genuine in their life. It's not authentic. Luke chapter 12 verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples in the meantime. uh, When so many thousands of people had gathered together. they They were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples. Beware of the leaven of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, he said, he was telling his disciples, I want you to look at the religious leaders and I want you to understand that they are full of hypocrisy and it's like the way yeast spreads in bread. You put in a little bit and then it just begins to spread throughout the whole lump. He said hypocrisy works just like that. So when you are a hypocrite, and hypocrite just means, the word actually means actor, pretender, your kids recognize it and they notice it and it'll turn them away from the Lord. Number two, what are most detrimental things to their spiritual health um, is when God is misrepresented to a child. And I, I hear this a lot when I talk to adults. They go, well, I was raised in a church where, you know, 
it comes out like this a lot of times. Well, something bad happened. Maybe mom died or somebody close died. And they said they were at the funeral and they heard, well, you know, God took them. God killed them. God needed another flower in his garden. You know, God needed another angel in heaven. You know, or God is misrepresented them. The character of God is misrepresented to them. They, they, they grow up thinking about God as you know, somebody that they don't understand, somebody that God kills people in car wrecks or tornadoes or earthquakes, you know, that God's sending that on people to punish them or, you know, on and on. Well, what happens is that misrepresents God. That's not accurate. That's not biblically correct, but that's how God is presented. And so it causes them to grow up going, why would I want to serve that God? Why would I want to serve God if that's, if that's who God is? If God took my, took my mom or took my grandma or no, maybe if you read the whole Bible, maybe you know, you'll find out that death was never God's plan. And the Bible says that it was the enemy who came to steal, kill, and destroy. Not God. The Bible says that God's will is that you'd have life and have it more abundantly. But guess what? We do live in a broken, corrupt, sinful world. And as a result of that, there's a lot of devastation and a lot of pain. doesn't mean God's causing it. But we live in a, in a world that's very broken, and that world came to be because of rebellion and sin from God's Word. See, kids need to understand that. But I've heard a lot of, I've talked to many adults. I've had people sit in my office and tell me I hated God growing up. Because if God would do this, that, and the other, I didn't want anything to do with Him. And I sat there and showed them from the Bible, God did not do that. That was not God's plan or God's will for you or for your life. No, the Bible teaches us that actually the will of God, the perfect will of God, is only being done in heaven, but is not being done on earth, which is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He said, pray that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the will of God is being done perfectly there where there's no death, no pain, no sickness, no tears. He said, the will of God is being done perfect there. So he said, I need you to pray that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because it's not being done on earth, and we need it to be done on earth. So we're praying that it be done on earth because it's not being done here. Now, that's a much longer sermon that we can talk about. But when you teach a child that when horrible things happen, oh, well, that was just God's plan, and his plans are mysterious, you're teaching them something opposite than the Bible. And I know a lot of people believe that, and a lot of people have heard that, but in fact, there are a lot of things that happen on this earth that were not the will of God, including this. The Bible says that it is the will of God that none should perish. Are people perishing? Yes, they are. People going to hell? Yes, they are. But God said it's the will of God that none would perish and that all would come to the knowledge of Christ in repentance. That's his will. But that's not happening. Why? Because, the will of, because we live on a broken planet. And, I, and we could take time to explain all of that, but all I'm saying is this. Do not misrepresent God to your kids. If you have a doubt, if you have a frustration, if you have an anger with God, go talk to your pastor, go talk to a friend, pray about it. Don't misrepresent God to your kids. They need to know that God is a good God that's for them and wants them to flourish and wants them to have abundant life and, a, and good life and their marriage succeed and their family succeed. That He's a God that answers prayer. 
But a lot of times, people in their, in their ignorance or in their pain, they misrepresent God to their kids, and it causes long-term damage, and I encounter it all the time as a pastor. So number three, what's the most detrimental things to their spiritual health? Number three, their friends, the people they hang around with. This could be even bigger than the first two. I see this all the time. Otherwise good kids raised in otherwise good families, but they get in with the wrong kid, wrong group, and the influence that that has on them is so massive that it can actually counteract what the parents have been doing in their life. They can get, I've seen kids get into drugs, pornography, you know, all types of sexual sin, things just because they got around the wrong group, wrong friends, and once it got a hook in them, it sent them down a path that was very difficult for them to recover from. So as parents, if we're going to fight for our kids' relationship with God, who they spend time with, their friends, is, is so important. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. We've spent time on it in other series that we've talked about, but you need to pay really close attention to who your children are hanging around with, and you need to do your homework, and you need to do a little bit of investigation, and don't just assume, oh, they're good people, and they come from a good family. Look, don't just assume that, okay? You need to know who they're around, who they're hanging out with. And finally, it would just be sin in general. What are the most detrimental things to a child's spiritual health? hypocrisy, misrepresenting who God is, the friends they hang around with, and finally just sin in general. Part of raising a family in this world is having to protect your children from sin because sin is very addictive. It's like a disease. And once it gets in a child, it's very difficult to get out. Addictions form, patterns form, habits form, and it's very difficult to get those things out. I don't really have to tell you that. You know that. You've dealt with it your own self. So it's a lot better if it, you never, it never gets its claws in you in the first place. This is what James said. He said, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, he's talking about how sin works. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. He's talking about the cycle of how sin works. It starts small, gets its claws in you, it grows, it entangles you. And eventually, if you're not free from it, it brings complete and total death, both physical and spiritual. So here's what I recommend to you. Uh, as someone who's leading your family, I encourage you to take notes on these things that we're talking about. You know, Take screenshots of some of the things we put up. Write them down. Think about them. And make sure that you're doing these things with your, with your family and helping to cultivate these things in your kids. And I believe, what I'm believing for our church and for our families is that we'll see this process of generational Christianity where Christianity gets more powerful with each generation. Amen?